Welcome to another Freshfields podcast. Today we're taking a look at the UK's consultation on introducing a corporate redomiciliation regime that would allow a non-UK incorporated company to change its place of incorporation to the UK whilst maintaining its legal identity as a corporate body. This type of corporate redomiciliation is not currently available under UK law, although some other jurisdictions offer a similar tool. And the idea of introducing this in the UK was first raised in a feasibility consultation in autumn budget last year, followed by a summary of responses published in April 2022. And specifically, this consultation was focused on allowing inward redomiciliation to the UK rather than outward redomiciliation from the UK, although this is also being looked at. With me to discuss this development, we have corporate law expert George Swan and tax experts Jill Gatehouse and Alison Dickey. Hello, everyone. Hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. Hi, Josh. So to start us off, George, what are the existing tools we have in the UK for migrating a company? Well, Josh, it's important to define at the outset what we're talking about and what we're not talking about and note the limitations of the current system. There is no current ability under UK law to truly migrate or re-domicile a company. So for a company as a single definable legal entity to move from one country's corporate registry to another under UK law. This used to be possible both into and out of the UK prior to Brexit, and it was available under the European cross-border regime, but that door has now been shut to us. So the structures that people use today seek to replicate the effect of migration or redomiciliation, but without actually undertaking it from a legal perspective. So a company might use a scheme of arrangement, for instance, to insert a new UK holding company above its current group, or it might seek to carry out a whole business transfer, transferring all the assets and liabilities from an existing entity to a new UK entity. But these are not true legal migrations, and they're inherently more complex than a straight re-domiciliation would be. As George says, I think it's important to note here that the proposals are a corporate measure, not a specifically a tax measure. So what the proposals relate to corporate migration, not simply the movement of tax residents from one jurisdiction to another. Um, the tax residence of a company can and is sometimes referred to as migration. And that can in many cases, though not, although not all, be already moved into and outs of the UK by moving the company's place of um, central control and management or CMC. And that's because of the UK's rules that a company is UK tax resident here if it's incorporated in the UK or if it's um, central management and control is in the UK. Now, how easy it will be to achieve a migration of tax residents to the UK simply by moving central management control will depend on a variety of factors, including where the company is incorporated already, what the tax residence rules are there and the provisions of a double tax treaty. But the particular point here is when we're talking about migration, then we're not just talking about moving tax residents or might not necessarily be talking about moving tax residents. Yes, this will be a totally new tool that hasn't been available to companies previously. And just moving on to some examples to all our guests, um, why might people want to use this new redomiciliation regime? So, Josh, there are a variety of reasons, really, but all are likely to be very business specific and you know, relate on the particular circumstances that, are, that an individual company will find itself in. 
So a lot will depend on the country where the company is currently incorporated, where it's intending to migrate from. But in general, we can expect companies to want to migrate when it's in their interest to move closer to their customers here in the UK or to take advantage of better business conditions, whether it be tax, financial, regulatory or other, or for the reputational benefits, frankly, of being a UK company. Um, you know, one, one good example of that is listed companies, for instance. So that's overseas companies who are currently listed on the London Stock Exchange. They might want to migrate to the UK to enable inclusion in the FTSE indexes, which they couldn't currently be if they were not incorporated in the UK. There's certainly an element of or the potential for forum shopping, but that's inherent in making the UK an attractive place for businesses to want to come. And, and Josh, on the tax side... I mean, there will be groups that have potentially for quite historical reasons, companies within their group structure, which are incorporated in offshore jurisdictions. They may historically have been also tax resident in those jurisdictions. They may have already moved the tax residents to the UK. I'm thinking of jurisdictions like the Cayman Islands or BVI. And they may see this as an easy way of moving those companies out of those jurisdictions, which we have seen examples of public groups being uh, criticised in the press for the number of offshore centre companies that they've got in their group, in fact, where in a number of cases they might actually be UK tax resident. But this would be a good way potentially of actually moving the, the corporate registration as well. Yeah, another another situation I've come across in the tax space is where you had a, a non-UK incorporated company that was trying to establish that it was tax resident in the UK um, via its central management and control. And it was trying to establish that with a, a map procedure, a mutual agreement procedure between the two tax authorities. But it, it, in the circumstances, it was getting nowhere. And it would have been oh so elegant if they were simply able to migrate their jurisdiction of incorporation to the UK. I think it's worth noting kind of in this context that we don't yet know whether the proposed UK redomiciliation regime will be an inward only regime. That is whether it will only provide for companies to redomicile to the UK or if there's also going to be an outward option. The consultation was very much focused on what an inward redomiciliation regime could look like, with only a couple of questions on the aspects of an outward regime. And the summary of responses uh, doesn't confirm one way or another if the regime will include the outward option. Although it does note that most respondents to the consultation supported a two-way regime to make the regime as attractive and flexible as possible. I mean, I think that having a two-way regime is really going to be critical to the success of the redomiciliation proposals. I mean, as a company, why would you redomicile to the UK if you didn't know that you could get out if it turned out to be the wrong decision? And also, more importantly, why should other countries allow for redomiciliation to the UK if there's not the prospect of return traffic? So that itself, that, that question flags an inherent restriction, I think, in how widely used the regime is likely to be. And that restriction arises from the fact that it's not just the UK that needs to allow for redomiciliation in, but existing other countries need to allow for redomiciliations out of their jurisdiction. And a relatively limited number of countries do. So examples might include New Zealand, Canada, Portugal, Luxembourg, and some other uh, offshore financial centres to name but a few. So there are other examples, and these are mentioned in the consultation of countries that have introduced redom regimes more recently, such as Singapore and Ireland. They have chosen only to offer inward redoms. 
And Hong Kong, which is currently introducing a redom regime for funds, has also opted only to offer inward redomiciliation. So we'll need to look at those examples quite carefully, and they'll they'll inform, I think, how successful the UK regime will be. But it is an important limitation to remember. Just because a company can move here doesn't mean that it necessarily will be allowed to by its, its exiting jurisdiction. It also doesn't mean, and another important thing to remember, that it can automatically operate in the same way here as it did before. And regulatory licenses and permissions are a good example of this. So if you're an insurance company, for instance, in an overseas jurisdiction, the mere fact that you can redomicile from a corporate perspective doesn't mean that you are allowed to transport your licenses over. You will need to apply to the UK regulators for permissions and other licenses as appropriate to carry on their activities. And this may be a, a huge exercise in itself, in addition to the corporate steps of redomiciliation. So lots to think about in terms of the sorts of companies that can come over and also the additional processes that will be involved in making sure that the redomiciliation is a success. Yeah, there's there's clearly a lot to think about still on the UK government's part about how they're going to construct this regime, or what the rules will be, whether it will be two ways or only inward, and including on the effects of tax residents. So, Alison, what, what do we think the interaction is going to be there? Thanks, Josh. So one of the questions in the consultation was whether companies that re-domicile to the UK should be treated in the same way for tax residence purposes as a company that's originally incorporated in the UK. So that is, as Jill's already mentioned, automatically UK tax resident unless it's treaty non-resident or whether a redomicile company should only be tax resident if its central management and control, its CMC, is in the UK. But it seems the view from the market as set out in the, in the response to the consultation is that a company redomiciling to the UK should be treated for tax residence purposes in the same way as an originally UK incorporated company. And ultimately, it would be quite unbalanced for there to be different corporate tax residence rules for originally UK incorporated companies versus redomiciled UK companies. Yeah, I have to say, Alison, I myself found it quite tricky to think that you could have different residence rules applying to a company that was originally incorporated here versus one that had moved here under these rules. It seemed likely to lead to some strange results potentially in practice. For example, you could have a company that wasn't resident anywhere because if the state where the management control is located, so perhaps the state that it moved from, only had an incorporation test of residence, the US would be an example of that, but the UK didn't then treat it as UK tax resident because the CMC had stayed outside, then the company becomes stateless, which is an awkward situation to be in. And um, particularly that was, you know, that was a potential situation to arise, partly because the suggestion is that the, the regime won't require you to have you know, economic substance in the UK. That's that's not a feature of the proposals at the moment. So in theory, you could read OSR to the UK without moving substantial functions to the UK, although from a commercial perspective, maybe that's not that likely, but but nonetheless. If we had a situation where it was you know, a re-domiciled company was only resident here if it had a central management control here, that's not going to help companies that are in the situation that Josh was explaining earlier, who were struggling with a map and, and sort of have a, a battle between two states and getting enough residents in the or enough activities in the UK to actually link with the residents. But however, you can see where the idea comes from, because bearing in mind what you said, Alison, with regard to the fact that if a, even if a company is incorporated here, if it is resident 
in another jurisdiction, including pursuant to a treaty, then it will no longer be treated as resident in the UK. And these days, most treaties include a mutual agreement procedure. So it requires a sort of procedural effort to go to both tax authorities to agree that the company is resident where it is. So you can see that there is some attraction from an administrative perspective in cases where it would be obvious that under a treaty, the company would not be resident in the UK because it doesn't have any activities here, that it would be advantageous not to have brought it potentially within the scope of having to make that map claim. I still think, in summary, it would be quite difficult, I think, to have a different set of rules, but we'll have to see where the government go on that. And if I can expand out a bit on on the question that, Josh, you asked, I think the position on UK tax residents for a company re-domiciling to the UK leads on to consideration of the UK stamp duty position for these companies. The key question here is whether shares in companies that re-domicile to the UK will fall within the scope of UK stamp duty or SDRT as applicable in each case in the same way that the rules apply to shares in originally UK incorporated companies. And the general expectation here is that stamp duty would apply to shares in companies re-domiciling to the UK. Although, interestingly, that was not actually expressly set out in the consultation or the response to consultation. But assuming that is the case, this could act as a deterrent to some companies re-domiciling to the UK. So, for example, transfers of shares in companies that are non-UK incorporated and UK tax resident do not typically fall within the scope of UK stamp duty. And that's as a result of the basic application of the UK stamp duty rules rather than any type of planning. But companies that are non-UK incorporated and considering re-domiciling to the UK may consider instead only migrating UK tax residents if the shares would otherwise be subject to UK stamp duty going forward as a result of the re-domiciliation. But this will ultimately depend on the reasons for considering migration in the first place. These reasons may not be met if only tax residents move. The key point here being that this proposed regime is not a tax-specific regime. Then in order to address any perceived deterrent, the solution could be to introduce an exemption from stamp duty, SDRT as applicable, for shares and companies re-domiciling to the UK. But like the residence point we previously just discussed, there doesn't seem to be much justification for a distinction in the stamp duty treatment between originally UK incorporated companies and re-domiciled UK companies. And such an exemption would also take you down the path of having to think about related anti-avoidance measures. So for example, to stop companies being incorporated outside the UK and then immediately re-domiciled to the UK in order to fall out the side the scope of a UK stamp. There's added complexity too for companies which are not UK incorporated but listed in the UK and that's because of the way that the depository instruments currently work, their DI structure. These structures are currently in place for corporate law and UK listing reasons to facilitate non-UK incorporated entities listing in the UK, which they must do through one of these DI structures. On a re-domiciliation to the UK, the reason for implementing the DI structure no longer applies because the re-domiciled company would be able to list its shares directly in the UK. And therefore, there would be demand for collapsing these DI arrangements on re-domiciling to the UK. And that gives rise to more stamp duty and SDR tier questions, doesn't it, Jill? It does, George. You're right. I mean, the the position for for companies, as you say, who are non-UK incorporated but listed in the UK, they will do that through depository interests. And there are particular rules in the Stamp Taxes Code that say that the depository interests that have been issued are not within the scope of UK stamp taxes, provided that the non-UK incorporated company whose shares are listed um, is not UK tax resident. 
But what will be quite interesting is if in circumstances where the company, which at the moment is non-UK incorporated, then migrates to the UK, you've then got a company that's potentially the shares are within the scope of UK tax. It might also have moved its tax residence to the UK. And then you've got a situation where the DIs then um, would not fall within the exemption. But as George, as you said, it's most likely that you've got no need for the DI structure anymore and you'd want to unwind it. But stamp duty is one of those tricky taxes that it's focusing on the effects of particular documents. And so I think to the extent that you've got by that stage a company whose shares are subject to stamp duty and potentially DIs that are subject to stamp duty, making sure that you unwind the arrangements in such a way that you don't inadvertently trigger some nasty stamp taxes will be a focus of everyone's minds. Yeah, so stamp duty is one of those facts of life for UK companies that they have to deal with. And realistically, it sounds like it's quite likely that a, a company that migrates to the UK is also going to have to deal with UK stamp duty Otherwise, as Addison said, it would be unbalanced. That's a bit of a deterrent to someone using this regime. What things, Jill, could the government offer to make it more attractive from a tax perspective? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Josh. So one of the things that I think will need to be looked at, just as a matter of course, as part of this regime, to work out if a company comes to the UK, and let's assume that it comes across and becomes UK tax resident at the same time as as redomiciling from a corporate perspective, then there's going to be, you know, it's going to own assets. And the question is going to be, what's its tax basis in those assets? Is it the historical basis? Or is it a market value at the time that you come into the UK? We don't have a very consistent approach to that at the moment where we've got companies that move into the UK. So, for example, for assets within the chargeable gains regime, you typically you've just got the historic base cost unless on the move to the UK, the asset has been subject to an EU exit tax charge. So essentially, if, for example, the company moved from the Netherlands to the UK and the Netherlands said, well, you're moving out of the Netherlands, so we're going to deem you to have disposed of your assets and you need to pay Dutch tax on that at this point in time, then from the UK's perspective, they will allow you to take the market value at the time as your base cost going forward, allocating the sort of the tax on the gain between the two states. But intangible assets have a slightly different test because they focus on the accounting value, although, again, this is subject to rules around EU exit taxes as well. So there's not entire consistency. And one of the things that to be looked at is to whether or not the consultation focuses on whether some of the inconsistency might be improved by expanding the circumstances in which you get a kind of market value, market value based cost going forward, where any exit charges apply, whether that's EU or non-EU. So the basis for the rules at the moment are essentially focused on EU fundamental freedoms and non-discrimination. And the question is, now that we've Brexited and we've got this new regime, whether it should open up more widely. But, you know, in fact, the regime may be even more attractive if you had a blanket rebasing of asset base costs to the market value, you know, whether or not there is an exit charge in the in the previous state. And that would be more akin, if you think back to the conversation that we had at the beginning, which was George was explaining that at the moment, the way that people might try to read domicile might be to effectively incorporate a new UK company and transfer all the assets to that. And if assets are coming into the UK by way of a transfer, then you would typically expect to get an, an uplift to the to the market value base cost. So that approach, whilst it seems favourable, is actually not out of kilter with a comparable situation, which might otherwise be your option. 
And another suggestion, just to add to what Jill was saying, for making the redomiciliation regime more attractive from a tax perspective, relates to the treatment of accrued losses in the company looking to redomicile to the UK. The consultation document included a question on making sure that the UK redomiciliation regime prevents loss importation when companies redomicile to the UK. Whereas there's actually an alternative view that without the ability to effectively convert accrued foreign losses into UK corporation tax losses, the regime is going to be unattractive to loss-heavy companies such as startups. And I think one we would presume that the aim of the regime is to attract exactly that type of company to the UK. So there is some rationale for this new regime to allow for some level of losses to be imported, although it's recognised some safeguards would be required in these circumstances. So, for example, only being able to offset the profits of the same trade or not using such losses for group relief to the UK profits of other companies. That's an interesting proposal. And I can see the attraction of making it attractive for startups in particular to to come to the UK. That would be really interesting. Moving on, George, do you think these proposals deliver on the objective of making it easy for for companies to come here? Not entirely, if I'm honest. It's interesting, I think, to compare the requirements for incorporating a company in the UK against the requirements that are proposed to apply to a company that wants to redomicile to the UK. And if you put those together, then actually it's much simpler to just incorporate a company into the UK. And what the government is looking to introduce and sort of apply by way of entry criteria to companies that want to redomicile are so-called good faith requirements. So really taking a qualitative judgment onto the company that's proposing to come across. So, for instance, asking the questions as to whether or not the directors are directors of good standing within their exit jurisdiction. And these are arguably quite onerous, or at the moment they're very uncertain, but they're arguably quite onerous criteria to have to apply. And so really I think the government needs to decide whether or not Companies House, in the case of the UK, is going to be the gatekeeper for and the judge of whether or not a company is sufficiently good to come within the UK, or whether or not these questions are actually more appropriate for the outgoing jurisdiction who, you know, if you've got a company that's been incorporated in another country for a substantial period of time, it it must be the outgoing jurisdiction who's in a better place to have oversight over the the company's relationship with existing shareholders, creditors, and and other stakeholders in the company. So the ideal position would be where redomiciliation was effectively analogous to incorporation of a new company, provided, of course, it could meet the base-level objective criteria as to whether or not it can continue to operate in the UK, post-redomiciliation as a separate legal entity. And to expand a bit on, on what George was just describing there, one of the proposed entry conditions to redomicile is um, that the company be required to prepare a report that's attested by the directors that explains the full legal and economic impacts of the transfer, as well as implications for key stakeholders. And it would need to be clarified if the economic impacts here are expected to cover the tax implications for both the company and its shareholders as a result of the redomiciliation. And if that is required, that's going to add to the complexity of producing this report. And this type of requirement for a very detailed report could act as a further barrier to companies seeking to make use of the UK redomiciliation regime. Yeah, that does sound quite a bit more onerous than incorporating a new UK company. One of the questions I had, George, was... Practicing international corporate law, you you come across an an alphabet soup of different kinds of entity names, different kinds of entity. How do we think that's going to work with this regime? 
It's a good question, Josh. I think at first, at least initially, the government is going to want to keep it relatively simple so that we would expect only corporate forms that are already known to the UK and analogous to UK corporate entities to be allowed to re-domicile. And that's the experience of how the the previous cross-border major regime operated. So it's unlikely to be available, for instance, for partnerships. And I would expect it to just really be sort of limited to private limited companies or PLCs and, and other sort of entities where there's an existing basis for operation. There are some foreign concepts that don't easily fit into our regime, but you really need a matching UK corporate form, I think, to make it work. And if you look at previous legislation, such as the cross-border merger regime, there was effectively an agreed list of of compatible types. Yeah, George, one of the entities that we do see reasonably regularly that we were kind of musing on how that would map across is, um, is a US LLC, because to some degree, its characteristics are actually quite similar to a UK LLP. So body corporate in nature, but but some elements of a partnership. And from a tax perspective, it has a, a sort of interesting history of debate over how an LLC would be treated. So, but the revenue practice in in large part is to treat it as opaque, so a, a sort of corporate vehicle, not transparent like a t- partnership. And typically, provided it's sort of drafted and prepared in the right way, it would have shares. Whereas a UK LLP, if that was the easiest thing that it transposed into, is transparent for tax purposes. So re-domiciling an LLC to an LLP, if the easiest match was an LLP from a corporate perspective, would actually be fundamentally different from a tax perspective. Yes, that could be quite a tricky situation. We'll have to wait and see how they figure that one out. And finally, Alison, when can we expect something on this from the government? So the introduction of an inward UK uh, corporate redomiciliation regime has been given the green light in the summary of responses to the initial consultation. But otherwise, the detail of the regime remains subject to consideration by the government and we can expect further consultations on the design of the regime in due course. However, neither the consultation nor the summary of responses indicated anticipated timing for the regime being introduced. So the timing of when this new regime will be available does remain a pretty key point to be clarified. I think the earliest we would expect to see a further consultation published is Legislation Day, uh, or L Day as we call it. So that's when the draft finance bill legislation is published, which typically takes place in mid-July. But otherwise, I think we would anticipate a further update may then be provided at the next autumn budget. I mean, it seems to me that there's a little bit of momentum behind this now, and maybe even the government is keen to show that these sorts of corporate law amendments can be made as part of the the UK's post-Brexit regulatory regime. So, you know, that, that may well drive the government moving sooner rather than later. But, you know, there is so much detail that's up in the air in terms of the implementation of the regime, then I don't think there can be any certainty that this will be coming particularly soon. So fingers crossed that it does, though. Thank you. We'll look forward to seeing whether the government fits this into their busy legislative agenda this year then. Finally, a thank you to all our guests today. So George Swan, Jill Gatehouse and Alison Dickey. If listeners would like more on the redomiciliation proposals, they can get in touch with their usual Freshfields contact or visit the Freshfields website.